Well, we are working our way through the Gospel of John, and we here at Grace believe that God's Word is His inspired truth. It's what's been given to us to allow us to live the Christian life and live in this world the way that God intended. And it's also, uh, we engage, as we sang so much, the Holy Spirit's work in this process, meaning that the Holy Spirit takes God's Word and makes it true in our lives. He applies it to our lives. He shows us, reveals us His truth. The Word is illuminates His truth. And so that's what we affirm here at Grace Church. And so that's why we study God's Word. And I pray that you, during our time of singing, rather than just you know getting your bearings here on a Sunday morning after a late night of football, instead of just trying to, okay, let me wake up, I hope that you've been praying and as we singing, preparing your heart, because God's Word does go out. The, um, the Holy Spirit is always at work. And the one guy said it this way, he said, but we must hoist ourselves. We need to be aware of God's presence, as Mitch said. And we need to allow him to take the word and apply it to our hearts. And so John has started this book off in a pretty deep fashion. Uh, he's really gone deep into explaining who Jesus is, that he's identical to God the Father. That's important. That's critical to understand. He says that Jesus is the message, not just a message from God. He's the message from God. And that Jesus came in physical form and he was subject to all the physical struggles that we struggle with yet without sin. And then this chapter one turns to the ministry of John the Baptist and the local religious leaders we saw last week who began to question him about the authority that he had in his ministry and why he was baptizing. Now we move to the end of the chapter and we're going to be in verses 35 through 51 where Jesus is going to call his first four disciples. Now, you look at this and you may count five, but there's only four that he actually, at this point, begin to follow him, although one might say that he calls Peter here as well, but Peter waits till later to actually follow. And so let's start off in verse 35, and let's just read a couple verses, and then we're to pray, and then we'll continue to work our way through the entire section. Verse 35 of chapter 1, the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, And he looked at Jesus as Jesus walked by, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you will allow each one here who knows you, God, who the Holy Spirit resides in their lives, in their souls. God, I pray that you will allow your word to go out and that they'll receive it, God. Pray for those who are struggling today with either physical struggles, maybe mental, God, maybe it's um, just a lot going on in their family, maybe it's crisis they've been through, so many things that uh, we go through as human beings, God, and, and I pray that you will allow us today to engage our hearts and our minds and listen to your word and apply your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. When I was a kid growing up with two brothers, we didn't have any sisters, just uh, three boys, and we were very competitive kids. We like to win. We like to be in competition. We like sports. And I, and I think our attitude toward winning could best be defined by something my little brother, my younger brother, Paul, said when he was in a swimming contest, probably like seven, eight years old, at the local pool on the 4th of July. A bunch of kids gathered there. They organized some races. And my brother, being even more competitive than me, and he, he swam this race. My dad came to him after the race, and he said, good job, Paul, second place. 
And Paul looked at him, and, and it was so funny coming out of the little guy's mouth. He, he said, yeah, Dad, first place loser. And that was our attitude, right? I mean, you just, second place wasn't an option. You had to win. It's about winning. And I want to know what's the win in most things in life I do. That's just the way I'm wired. If I'm doing something, what's the win in this situation? Well, I want to know what the win is for the church. What is it that we should be doing? What is our faith? What is our church to be about? So I, I read this question in a book about discipleship, and I want to read this to you, and you answer this question in your mind. If Christianity were a, a team sport and the church is Jesus' team, what would winning be? If Christianity were a team sport and the church is Jesus' team, what would winning be? Think about that for a second. What, what is the win for you, the church? And I know one thing, as I begin to process this question, and you think, well, pastor, you're supposed to have all the answers to these questions, right? But I wanted to process this. I wanted to think through it. What is the win for us? It would definitely include the glory of God. As you read through Scripture and as you go through the Bible, you can't separate anything that happens from the glory of God. Everything is about his glory. And so he desires for us, his people, to be passionate worshipers, holy worshipers, those who engage his spirit through Jesus Christ and the power that he gives us, and he desires us to bring him glory. So there's a couple of things I think we're going to answer that question. We have to kind of deprogram ourselves from thinking because we all do it. We all say things that are really not biblical. We pray things that aren't biblical, even those who have been in church forever without thinking because we're so conditioned this way. Like we don't come to church. We are the church, right? We know that. We, we, we are the church. We talk about that a lot. You don't come to church. And worship is more than coming into a building and it's more than singing some songs. That's, worship is so much more than that. So true worship at least is valuing God above everything else. Valuing him above everything else. And then also we know that true worship isn't just what we do with our mouths and our hands and our feet. It also is about engaging our heart. It flows from our heart. Jesus made this clear. He said, people honor me with their lips but their heart is far from me. So we can go through motions of worship and not be worshiping at all. And so if we're going to move toward a biblical answer, then it definitely is something about doing the work of God, doing what God's called us to do for the glory of God, being worshipers who do God's work, everything we do, Romans 12, 1 and 2, for God's glory. So think about it as a church then. We gather here corporately, to become more authentic worshipers of God. Because worship is what ultimately will change our hearts. Because you could come here and you could learn to do stuff, but your heart not be moved, Jesus says. You're not, your heart not be in it. So we come here to learn how to better represent God and his rule in the world. We're, we come here to be built up into spiritual maturity as we sit under biblical teaching, sound biblical teaching, we come here to remind ourselves of who we are, who we belong to, and this is done even better in K-Group when we get together and we remind ourselves of these things. Also, we help each other fight stagnation, spiritual stagnation and apathy that can slip into all of us because we lose sight of the purpose, of the win, so to speak. We come here to encourage each other through the hardships of life and remind each other, keep your eyes upon Jesus, 
and we learn more of God, and then our worship becomes more authentic. Our worship to God becomes more authentic, and we engage the truth, which is Scripture, and we engage the Spirit. Our spirits are engaged with the Holy Spirit in this process. Jesus said he's seeking worshipers who worship him in spirit and truth. He said these are true worshipers. We're going to see that later in John. And so we come here to learn to be better worshipers, to ascribe God the worth that he's entitled and he already owns. We focus upon him and we live our lives with him in view. That's what a worshiper is. We, we do everything for God's glory. But the, the problem exists in so many churches, this is true, because we see worship as a destination or worship as something we do in these walls between a certain time on Sunday morning. Then we become what the danger is, what some people call we become the frozen chosen or the holy huddle, that we think that worship is just about what we do in here and so we become very comfortable with being a spectator during a time on Sunday, and we sit and we take it in, and then we walk out and nothing really changes. But worshipers, something changes in our hearts, and it changes the way that we live our life. And, and what really clicked for me was back in probably 1999, 2000, somewhere in there, I read a quote from Pastor John Piper and it really radically changed the way I thought about the church and the purpose of the church. He said, the ultimate goal of the church is worship. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Let me read that again. Think about that for a second. Missions, and don't let that throw you because it's easy here in our church program way of thinking. Missions is what Jeff Dowdy's doing down in Brazil or what the Friendship House does down on Rust Street. Or what this other missionary does in this other country, missions. Missions is about going and making disciples of all people. Some people do that in Brazil. Some people do that in Liberia. We're all called to do it wherever we live. So missions exist because worship does not. And so we're not designed to be spectators and be entertained. We are to be trained up as an army of people with the gospel, every single one of us, to go and make disciples for God's glory, to make worshipers for God's glory. Because the end will come when all people of all tongues, tribes, and nations, Revelation says, will gather before the throne and God receives glory because people of all across the spectrum, every tribe, every tongue, every nation is represented to bring God glory. And so we're trained up as worshipers we leave here, we scatter to go and to make disciples. So here's the win in a nutshell. Making disciples for the glory of God. Making disciples, making worshipers for the glory of God. Missions exist because worship doesn't. So when Jesus said in Matthew, go therefore and make disciples, he wasn't talking about like hardcore, really committed Christians Look what he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then what? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Go and make disciples, baptize them, teach them all that I have given to you, commanded to you. And so a Christian is a disciple, and a disciple is a worshiper, 
And God desires more and more to worship him. And so please get it out of your head that a disciple is some kind of second stage Christian. Everyone who names the name of Christ and you're truly in Christ, you are a disciple. And everything in our text today should be things that you desire to know and apply in your life because if you're a disciple and you want others to then to want to be worshipers also, so you need to see them come to Christ and be a disciple. So as we go through this, some people refer to this as really the paradigm for discipleship as we walk through this passage. And we're going to move fairly quickly, but keep that in your mind, the when, making disciples for the glory of God. So let's start back again in verse 35 again. Number one, disciples follow Jesus, okay? Disciples follow Jesus. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked and he saw Jesus walking by, and he said, behold, the Lamb of God... And the two disciples that were with John heard him say that, and they started following Jesus. So what we've learned about John the Baptist so far is John the Baptist is a powerful, passionate, and very popular preacher in Israel. But he understood that the time had arrived for him to be replaced by Jesus. John would say in a short time later, chapter 3, Jesus, he must increase, I must decrease. So as John's standing there with his two disciples, he identifies Jesus as being so much bigger and more important than him. And he says, there's the Lamb of God. We talked about that last week. Don't have time to go into that again. But he points Jesus out in his significance. And normally, in this time, when, you, when a rabbi or a teacher had disciples, you wouldn't take that, those disciples and send them with another teacher. You trained them up, and then they would go, and they would become teachers, rabbis as well. But Jesus here is something totally different. John sends his disciples away with, with Jesus. I heard a story this last week from somebody here in the church that's here today, and they were talking about their children who, their child who's on campus at a, at a state university here in Georgia, and they're part of a campus ministry, and there's this like rivalry between these campus ministries. And one girl who was a volunteer for one of the campus ministries was actually caught taking down flyers and car flyers that were on cars from another campus ministry because she felt threatened because they were taking people away from their campus ministry. All right? So is that the place where we've arrived in America that we are so possessive of our disciples that, you know, they gotta, we can't lose them because we base our, our success on our disciples. We don't want to give up disciples, but here John the Baptist says, I need you to go with Jesus. And so they started following Jesus and quit following John. And, and let me just say on a side note here, we need to be really careful because it's so easy in America with so many incredible teachers, so many people out there who are, are great at giving the word of God, so many charismatic figures, so many people who have big followings. It's so easy to take our eyes off of Jesus and begin to follow other people. And we think if we're following them, we're following Jesus. But so many times we elevate them to a place, really, that you begin to listen to them and their take on a, a passage before you even put any thought into it or even begin to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to, to reveal the truth or show you how to apply this. Let me just see what this person says. Or let me listen to this person, what they say about this. And, and I think that's a danger because we can easily begin to follow other people other than Jesus. And so while these disciples, 
begin to literally follow Jesus, the same is true for us. While we can't literally physically follow him, we follow his teaching and we follow his manner of life. We look in scripture, we see his teaching, and we follow his teaching, and we follow his manner of life. Look at verse 38. Jesus turns to them, and this is probably Andrew. I mean, we know this is Andrew from a few verses later. It's probably the author of the book, John. So Jesus turned and saw them following, and he said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And so they want to know where Jesus is staying. Jesus wants to know what they're seeking. What do you really want is really what Jesus is getting at. What do you want? What do you want? He's challenging their motives. He's challenging to see if this is just curiosity, that they want to check out Jesus and see what he's about, or are they seriously want to follow this guy and be with him because they realize, based on John's testimony, there's something clearly unique and different about him. And they can see by his presence and see by who he was. So Jesus is testing them. Do you want just my address or do you really want to know what God's doing in the world through me? And so these disciples, they begin to follow Jesus. That's the first thing disciples do. Secondly, disciples abide with Jesus. Verse 39, Jesus said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour or about 4 p.m. So these disciples, they follow Jesus, then they stay and they sit under his teaching so they can hear more about what he's about. And they come and they want to be part of Jesus' ministry, and the truth is they never leave. They stay with Jesus. They're committed to Jesus. So whatever in Jesus' fashion and way of doing what he does, he shares with them, they're hooked, they're in forever. They follow him and they stay. Now this word stay is going to be a, a very unique and special word throughout this Gospel of John. In fact, later on it's going to be translated with the word, anybody want to guess? It might have been on the screen. Abide. Abide. The word is abide in the Gospel. And so here it obviously speaks of physically staying with Jesus, but throughout this Gospel it's going to become to mean so much more than just being in physical proximity to Jesus. It's going to be about communion with Jesus. In this great chapter that we'll look at, John chapter 15, it's about union with Christ. And so physically, these disciples are able to remain or abide with Jesus, but don't let that discourage you because you can't physically do that because chapter 15 says we do that too. We can do that as well. Abide in me. And then another thing that it's important to know is this idea of abide has not only has to do with Jesus' communion with Jesus in his person, but also with his teaching. He says this in chapter 8, verse 31, if you, if, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So he says, if you abide in my teachings, if you stay with my teachings, then you're truly my disciples. So abiding, true disciples abide. They follow and they abide. They commune with Jesus. They have a relationship with Jesus that's real and personal. And then the third thing we see in verse 40 and 41, disciples are others-focused. Just the nature of, of disciples are others-focused. It says, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, 
we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. So Andrew, right off the bat, he goes and he wants to share with his brother, Simon Peter. And Jesus and his disciples, this, is, this will happen again in this passage. His disciple goes and shares with other people. That's the nature of a disciple is they publicly testify to the person and work in Jesus. Look at verse 42. He said he brought, so he brings Simon Peter to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. In Bible times, God often changed people's names. This happened a great deal. And in Jesus' situation here, I really think what he's doing is he's asserting his authority over Peter by telling him that he's a different man once he comes in union with Jesus, once he follows Jesus, once he abides with Jesus. His character will begin to adapt to who he really is. And Jesus says, here's your name. Your name is now Peter, which means he's the rock. He's he's rock. He's going to be a rock. And, And as we look through Peter's life and we we see him transgress in his growing to in Christ and following Christ, we'll see there are times that he's not so much a rock, right? There's times where he doesn't do so well. But let me ask you, do you embrace your identity in Christ? We talked about identity in Christ last week. When you came to Christ, God declared you holy and righteous. That's your identity. You are holy. Are you becoming more of who you are? Are you becoming more of who Jesus declares that you are because of him? That is what happens with Peter. Jesus says, Peter, here's what you are. I have a vision for you. You're going to be the rock. You're going to do amazing things. The church is going to take off under your leadership. That's what's going to happen, Peter. And Peter, at this point, isn't even committed to follow Jesus. But I think we see, as it leads right into the, the next thing, look at verse 43, let me read that, and then, and then we'll move to verse 44. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So look what he says. Jesus found Peter. He, I mean, Philip. He found Philip. And just like that, he found Peter as well. And here's the fourth truth of, the truth of discipleship. Disciples are chosen by God. Disciples are chosen by God. Why does that matter? I'll tell you why it matters. It matters very, very practically. And John 15, 16 says the same thing. He says to his disciples, you didn't choose me. I chose you. Because if you're going to engage in the discipleship process, which real true disciples disciple other people, we're going to see that, you need to realize that God is the one who's working and doing the calling. He's doing the heavy lifting. It's your job is to be faithful and to do what he asks you to do. Because you can't make a disciple. You can't convince someone to be a follower of Jesus, to be a worshiper of Jesus. God reveals himself. The Holy Spirit illuminates the eyes of someone And yes, you and I are the hands and feet in the process of discipleship, but don't be misled or think otherwise. God is the one that does the work. 
God is the one that does the choosing. And so Peter's not ready, and we're going to see Peter progress, but Peter is chosen by God. Now, we share this graph a lot. If you'll put that up on the screen, this graphic we use about discipleship, the discipleship process. And I wanted you to think about this for a second, because so many people find themselves stagnant in spiritual infant stage, spiritual childhood stage, where we're just always about us. And here, here just stay with this slide for a minute. All we want to do is focusing up, focus on us and how we feel about a situation or a circumstance. And listen, as long as we focus on our feelings and whether something makes us feel good at the moment or not, we're never going to engage other people in discipleship. Because why? It's hard. It's difficult. You're often rejected. It never works out. People don't show up when they're supposed to. And you feel, can feel really, really discouraged. But when we realize that God is the one who is choosing disciples, we just go about faithfully doing what he's asked us to do and let him take care of the results. Then we jump in and say, I want to do what God has called and equipped me to do, which is to, to be a disciple-making disciple. I want to not just be a spectator, a taker, somebody who says they worship, but I want to worship with my life. And I want to see others worship with their life. Because how can we, how can we get a true glimpse of God if we see the mercy and grace of Jesus, and we see just a small, just little glimpse of what we'll see in full in eternity, if we get that in our lives, why would we not say, I want everyone to be a worshiper of this great God? I want everyone to know what I know. And it's no wonder that God wants worshipers, because He's awesome. He's great. And as he takes over more and more of my heart and captivates me, then it's going to naturally just flow off of my lips and out of my life that I want other people to be worshipers as well. Because you think about it. Think about what you're passionate about. Nobody has to convince you to be a big fan of Auburn, right? Nobody has to twist your arm to get you to tell how much you like Alabama. And nobody has to tell you a sermon on why you need to say Georgia scored some major points yesterday and this is going to be a great team. Hopefully we won't be disappointed again. But they've got a great team. Nobody has to do that because the things that you're passionate about come out of your life. And so as we worship and as we know God, as we commune with God, as we abide in God through Christ, we become more intense and passionate about our worship, and it just comes out of our lives. It's who we are. We make disciples, and God does the work. One thing that, it's not original with me, but when you look for someone to disciple, often the acronym, not a real pleasant one, FAT, faithful, available, teach, teachable, faithful, is this person do I see some faithfulness qualities in their life? Are they consistent at church? Are they available? Do they, are they in a, in a spot where their life and my life are kind of running on parallel tracks where we can be part of each other's life and be in community one, one, with one another? And then are they teachable? 
Had they gotten to a place in their life where they're open, they, want, they, haven't, they don't have all the answers, they don't know everything, they want to be taught. They want to hear from your life experience what God has brought you through and taught you through the ups and downs and the difficulties of life. And so we engage the process. We, like the graph showed, we want to move and, and be more committed so we become disciple-making disciples. And when we realize that God is the one that does the work, it makes it so much better. Augustine said this, and I'll move on to the next point. We could not even have begun to seek for God unless he had already found us. We could not even begin to seek for God unless he's already found us. So think about it. People in your life who are asking questions, people in your life who wonder about your spiritual life and why you do certain things or why this is a priority for you. God is working. God is doing something in their life. They wouldn't get to that point on their own. God is revealing himself. Step into that. Verse 45. So Philip found Nathanael. He's others focused, like we said, disciples are. And he said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Come check it out and see. All right, interesting. Nathaniel is skeptical, but Nathaniel probably knows the Old Testament. He knows truth. And you get this a lot when you're making disciples, when you're talking to people about Jesus. There's people who have information. They know things. They went to a camp meeting when they were a little kid, or they went to a church altar when they were a teenager, or they went to summer camp, and, and they know some stuff. And sometimes you have to teach them and step in and show them truth. And be confident because you're in God's word and you're listening to what God has to say. You're in K-group, you're learning, you're in fight club, you're, you're hashing this stuff out so that you can give answers. So, so he knows that th there's nothing in the Old Testament about the Messiah coming out of Nazareth. But what he didn't know is Jesus was actually born in Bethlehem, just like the Old Testament prophesied and said. And yes, Nazareth was this little village, insignificant and so he's skeptical about it. And so what, is, what does Philip say? He says, I want you to just come and see Jesus for yourself. So verse 47 through 50, we see the fifth quality. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I, saw, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? And so what I see here is a recognition of Jesus' supernatural ability. And that's a given, probably for most of you sitting here today, right? You know that intellectually is that Jesus was more than a man, and that Jesus is supernatural, and our faith is more than just material. It, it's something amazing. It, it's supernatural. But many times we fail to remember that, often, especially in the discipleship process. Disciples believe in the supernatural power of Jesus. 
And why that matters is this, a couple reasons. One, it keeps us on task. It keeps us focused. Because Scripture clearly makes it a point to emphasize, and I think of Ephesians that I refer to much, that we are in a spiritual battle. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but we wrestle against spiritual forces. And, and that's crazy, and that seems extreme, but that's exactly what Scripture tells us, that we're in a supernatural ba- battle. And when we take our eyes off of that, then we look for human solutions and human methods to accomplish God's Word rather than trusting Him, knowing that He's working the process, like I said, and that God is behind all of what we're doing. And how that helps me is I don't get too worked up over what goes on in the world. I don't. Yes, things look bad out there. But you know what? Your political party is not the answer. The answer is Jesus. When you keep your eyes on Jesus and know that he is supernatural and he's doing a supernatural work and all of this is part of his plan because he's sovereign then all of a sudden it doesn't mean you ignore reality at all you don't deny reality but you put it in his proper perspective that jesus is more powerful and they can take away my life but they can't take away my hope and my faith and my salvation and, and then on top of that, Jesus already warned us that suffering is part of the deal. And so if we suffer, we're to praise God in it because we know that we're counted worthy to be identified like Jesus was. He suffered, so we suffer. So if God is for you, who can be against you? There's something supernatural. Now, look, when it comes to supernatural and spiritual warfare, People go crazy extremes here, right? Some people just flat out deny it. Their live shows reality is they don't believe it, even though they may give lip service to it. Then other people go down the other direction, and they want to find spiritual warfare under every rock, you know, every situation, every circumstance. Oh, the devil, look what he's doing there. And they want to find everything to be some evil deal and, and tie it right back to Satan and his work. Yes, Satan is the prince and power of this air, but when we get hung up on trying to identify Satan then we don't lift up Jesus and we're missing the point. So instead of finding Satan and his minions in every situation, lift up Jesus, emphasize Jesus, point people to Jesus and know that the number one thing we can do to fight a spiritual battle is in prayer. It's prayer. Prayer is how we engage spiritual battle because we have no ability in our own self to do it. What do we have? What tools and weapons do we have of our own? We don't. We have God's word and we have prayer, and that's how we engage. So be aware there's supernatural aspect of discipling and disciple making and becoming a disciple. And then the last part of the the passage, the second half of 50 and verse 51, he tells him, he says, you're going to see greater things than these. Greater than this thing I just told you about you being on the fig tree. I'm going to show you even greater things. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angel, angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What in the world is he talking about there? I'll explain it in a second. But what I see here is that disciples continue to grow spiritually. 
Disciples continue to grow spiritually. As this narrative closes, and Jesus is telling these four disciples that they will be witnesses to even greater things. You've seen this? You're going to see more. You're going to see a whole lot more of what I'm doing. And I think what he's talking here, he's referring to um, the, the Old Testament story of Jacob and Jacob's ladder. You may remember that story of angels descending and going up and down. And I think the point of this statement is that Jesus is the link between earth and heaven. From us to the Father, Jesus is that ladder. He's that link. And that's going to become clearer and clearer throughout this gospel that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. He's going to make that clear to his disciples. They're going to continue to grow in their understanding. Yes, not perfectly. They struggle a lot in their lives with, okay, Jesus, you're talking about dying on a cross, and here we're arguing about who's the greatest. We don't get it, right? That that happens. Those moments happen a lot in the disciples' life. So often they're like clueless. They doubt Jesus one minute. They trust him the next, doubt him again. But hello, is that a little bit like you're in my life, right? Are we not like a little bit like this? Up and down, up and down. We have a good quiet time. We feel powerful. We feel good. We're going to make a difference. We walk out. The first rejection we get, the first person that doesn't acknowledge us and respect us the way that we thought they should, then what we do, we close down, oh, I feel terrible, I feel awful, and we base this right on our feelings at the moment. Well, the good thing is, even though the disciples dealt with ups and downs, and we deal with ups and downs, true disciples continue to grow. I've showed you these graphs before. A long time ago, I want to show it again because it's such a great picture. Go ahead, put that on the screen. The bottom is the way that it looks when we follow Jesus Christ. Yes, there's ups and downs, but there is a trajectory to be more and more like Jesus Christ in our life. And so, while you may not see yesterday or last week what God did to make you more like Christ, if you don't look back over the last five years and see some major growth or at least some significant changes and more means of grace being real and true in your life, you're more consistent in your prayer life and in with God, then you need to worry about that a bit because Scripture tells us that a person who's in Christ, they grow. Unfortunately, the top graph is the way that we've been taught that we need to deprogram ourselves, that we put our faith in Jesus, meaning we pray a sinner's prayer, and then we're in Christ, we're a Christian, but then Maybe down the road one day when we have children and they're ready to go to church or maybe one day when I'm ready, then I'll really be a follower, a disciple, and abide in Christ. But until that point, I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. I got my fire insurance. I'm sitting right here. There's nothing in Scripture that explains and tells a disciple lives that way. A disciple is the bottom, somebody who comes to Christ and then there's growth. And there's moments like we have in Romans chapter 8 where Paul says, we groan. We hurt, we struggle. We're, we're, we're going through difficult and terrible times. But in that we have hope because we know that Jesus meets us, the Holy Spirit meets us. He works in ways that we can't even comprehend, praying on our behalf in those moments. And we engage his presence. And we join him in those moments. And in those valleys, we have hope because we know that we're coming out, that we're not going to stay there. It's not going to be forever. And maybe you feel like forever you've been in a valley. You can know and rest assured that God is working, if you're his child, to conform you, even, especially maybe I should say, in that valley, to become more like Jesus Christ. So what is a disciple? It's someone who is a worshiper. 
And it's someone who sees Jesus, knows Jesus, abides with Jesus. You know that God is the one that's doing the work. It's not on your power and your strength. It's the Holy Spirit working in you supernaturally. And you trust him because he's growing you in faith to be more like Christ. That's the truth of Scripture. So in closing, let's wrap it up with our head, heart, and hands. I hope you'll take away today, Christians are disciples. That's what a Christian is, a disciple. And disciples make disciples because we want more and more people to worship God. Because a win for us is we want to be true worshipers. And when you worship God, something changes. The heart. This is where I had to rest and say, you know, let's practice what you preach here, John. The Holy Spirit's working in some people, some people not at all. What's the Spirit convicting you about? Because I could throw out some options, some things maybe that you need to search your heart. You have the Holy Spirit. What's, what, what's he saying to you? What's your next step? Look at the grab. What needs to be next? Do you need to take that step of discipling somebody else, being part of their life? What's the Holy Spirit asking you to do? In the app, I put a link to a very easy discipleship process. If your conviction point is today, I do need to be discipling others. There's many ways I'll talk to you, I use to disciple other people. Lately, one of our groups we started using something really simple. It's it's called Fighter Verses. And this is actually, all these verses have been on our website for several years. If you go to that link that I put in the app, or if you go to, uh, on the website, you go to groups. And it's under men, but it definitely isn't just men and fighter, fight clubs. And under there, you can download 52 verses. And, and, and basically, this is the verse, journaling space, and we get together, we talk about it. One of our groups, I'm beginning to use this as the way that we're going to begin our discipleship process. You can get one of these. Um, you can see me. Uh, first one, I'll give this to you after church today if you're going to use it. Uh, otherwise, I'll have some back on the resource card, or you can order these online. Just a really simple journal. It's nothing special. You don't even need it. You can go on the website and get everything you need. What's the Holy Spirit saying? Let's respond and not be hearers only, but doers of the word. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this passage. Although lengthy, there's so much here that we see as you call your first disciples, how that we can know what it means to be your disciple and then be challenged to be a disciple-making disciple. God, I pray that you will use your spirit to bring boldness and courage and strength as we sang a minute ago. When, when the, these things are absent, we know that you're working supernaturally on our behalf. And God, help us to step into these relationships, these situations where we need to speak up. And God, help us to begin to make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that you've commanded. And you're with us even to the end of the age. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.